This is a crowd podcast. Hello, I'm Geraint Thomas. And I'm Tom Fordyce. And you've just entered the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Brought to you by Zwift, the indoor cycling app where fun is fast. Welcome. So we're back once again. Nice to see you, G. What have you been up to this week? Uh, Usual, mate. Bit of training, bit of Zwifting. But um, I've got a story about Zwift, though. Oh, really? Yeah, I was on my turbo on the balcony, as I do, as I have done every day that I've lived in this apartment, right? Which is over two years now. So I'm on the balcony. I'm actually doing a little charity ride and uh, going along. And next thing, I just out the corner of my eye, see this guy like on the grass below. Like I'm on first floor and he's on the ground floor. So I look down and then he's like saying something. So I take my headphones off and he's like, get off that turbo. Or he didn't call it a turbo. Get off that thing. And I was like, what? He's like, it makes so much noise. I was like, ah, sorry, but yeah, I'm just doing this charity ride. I'll be done in half an hour. He's like, it's above my bedroom. And I was like, mate, it's like 11.45 in the morning. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) He's like, oh, I've got a daughter. I've got a daughter. I was like, you're in your mid sixties, mate. Like, okay, benefit of the doubt. Your daughter's, you know, might want to sleep, but come on, who are you kidding? I've never seen him with kids. He's lived there ever since I've moved in. And, uh, He's like, I'm going to complain. I was like, well, go on then, go and complain. I just carry on. You know, I'm doing it for charity. I'm not just, you know, this isn't a laugh. This is for, this is, I'm doing my good deed for the day. <laughs> and uh, 10 minutes pass, he comes back out shouting again, every day you're on that. And then eventually I was like, oh, okay then. And I just have to stop. Got out and just went out on the road and finished my, my training then. But then I get back and uh, the concierge is like, knocking on the door and like, yeah, we've, we've had a lot of complaints over the last couple of weeks. I was like, since this is the first time I've ever heard about it, I've lived here for two and a half years. Oh, it was ridiculous. Anyway, don't stress. Our club rides are still happening. They're still going to happen. He, he is not going to sleep and he is going to be throwing stuff at the balcony. But I'm committed to this club and that's it. He's going to have to suck it up. Brings a tear to my eye, that story. I mean, what what is this guy's problem? Like, is he not ever heard you before exactly it seems very know. selective anyway I don't think this could be industrial espionage do you thinking whoa whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. this form is looking a bit we, we need to bring this man to his knees before the big <laughs> well, stage races I've just bought some high heels anyway so I'm going to walk around in high heels for the rest of my time in this apartment so he can sod <laughs> right off So, gee, I know I haven't been a fantastic chairman for the GTCC. I haven't done a great deal, have I? But I have come up with a bit of a cunning plan for this episode. What I'm going to try and do is match up the topic of this episode with the racing calendar. So see if you can guess what I've gone for as our topic this week. Well, obviously coming up, we've got some big cobbled races, so I'm hoping it's the cobble classics. You know me too well. It is cobbles. We are going to talk all about cobbles. Nice. And... This season, like this cobbled season, is a funny old thing if you, if you haven't done it before, if you haven't watched it. So just give us a quick rider's run through how it works. So basically, cobble season, the highlight is Paris-Roubaix, which is like no other race. And before that, you have Tour Flanders or Ronde Vlaan Vlaanderen in Belgium. Good accent. Yeah, it's in Belgium, that. Basically, you have a whole build-up to that. So you have the opening opening weekend, which is generally end of February, where you have... 
Het Newsblad, which is the local newspaper, they sponsor it. Used to be Het Volk, went to Het Newsblad. And then Kerner, Brussels Kerner. That's more of a traditional sort of sprinters one. So it starts with that weekend. And then you have a bit of a break. We have some stage racing. And then basically there's a heap of one-day races that build up to Tour of Flanders and then Roubaix the following week. So you'd have stuff like Dwars, Dors, Vlanderen. But all these are, are on the similar sort of roads. Uh, Gent Wevelgum is a big one. And then E3 Haralbecker, which is the last big hit out before Tour of Flanders. Then obviously the climax in Belgium is Tour of Flanders. And then a week later, Paris-Roubaix. But the thing is, the cobbles are just so different. All the Belgian races are the same. They're over the same roads, the same climbs. They just vary in the the climbs they do and the amount of climbing they do. Obviously, the hardest and the longest would be Tour Flanders. It's a monument in cycling. There's five monuments. Tour Flanders is the second one. And then the third one, Paris-Roubaix. And that's over... The cobbles there are just completely different. So in Flanders, they're little cobbled climbs, bergs, they're also known as. They're hard, they're bumpy, but compared to Roubaix, they're, they're nothing. They're as smooth as a baby's backside, basically. Roubaix <laughs> is just, it's as if someone's driven along a mud track and basically stood at the back of a lorry just throwing out cobbles and where they land is where they land and that's it. Some have, some have sat flush on the floor with a smooth surface. Some have the pointy end just sticking up. There's big gaps between some. Some are nice and flush together. They're just so uneven. Cars don't even drive on them, really. The tractors, the local farmers, only use those roads, really. And because of that, you have that sort of, like, grooves either side where the tyre tracks are, so it kind of raises in the middle. So sometimes it's better to ride in the middle because it's a bit smoother. Sometimes that's the worst place. Sometimes you try to avoid them as much as you can most of the time. So, yeah, it's just such a unique race because there's nothing else like it. It's the only race of the year where we ride on these roads. That's what makes it so special, really. And this is one of the great things about cycling, isn't it? Like a football pitch is a football pitch, right? Pretty much wherever you go, it might be slightly bigger or slightly smaller, but you don't get professional footballers or you don't get Champions League games that are suddenly on like a cinder pitch. You know, the pitches are just universally the same. Whereas the beauty of cycling is like you guys would do some races over these ludicrous cobbles, then some different cobbles, which are uphill cobbles. And then... Two months later, you're on a beautiful, pristine road in Italy, and then you're on some French road. It's just it's one of the lovely things about your sport. Yeah, definitely. But the cobbles guys are definitely built for it. You know, you, you don't get the five foot five, 40 kilo climbers riding Paris Roubaix. <laughs> it's. Uh... Oh, really? Got dope control. Oh, yeah. um, I'll just finish this then. <laughs> yeah, so they're like. They're the big guys, you know, they're they're a lot heavier build, bigger, more powerful. You know, they can ride flat out along these bumpy roads and it barely touches the sides, you know, whereas the, the lighter guys seem to just bounce all over the place, aren't stable on them, scared of them almost. But I think like the Belgian guys obviously is built into them. They just love that race in those roads. It's what they grow up with. And um, to be honest, it's, it's where I fell in love with cycling as well. Like those races, the classics are just unbelievable. There's such... Anything can happen. The atmosphere there is ridiculous. But yeah, it's just like unique. I'll be honest with you, this sounds like the single best decision I have made as GTCC club chairman. I think I've finally pulled off a winner. Cobbles it is. I think you have and I think we've got a pretty good guest as well. 
Welcome along to a brand new podcast called 21st Century Football, a complete guide. Well, so far that is. This podcast is all about celebrating the best of the world's most beautiful game, but only if it happened in the 21st century. This series is all about championing the greatest footballers of the last 20 years. Each week we'll have a variety of hosts, including YouTube star Statman Dave Stephen Tries. Got that underwear range. You've got a pair on now, haven't you, Stephen? No, no. I soiled mine this morning. And myself, Will Brazier, will also feature radio legend Adam Brown. Find us on your regular podcasting sites, as well as our brand new YouTube channel. Search 21st Century Football. It sound right, boy. The GTCC are delighted to be sponsored by our friends at Amp Human. They're dedicated to helping athletes at all levels achieve their potential, even amateurs like me. Amp's flagship product, PR Lotion, is the world's first and only lotion to deliver the natural electrolyte bicarb to the body. Now, gee, this all sounds quite fancy, but you've been using it for, what, a couple of years now? Does it help? Yeah, definitely. And it's not just any old ad this either, you know, to try and get a bit of cash in to help produce the pod. But I genuinely feel like it does help kind of lather it on wherever you want, whatever muscles are working. So, yeah, bang it all over my legs for any hard session or, uh, yeah, time trial. Well, there's studies as well that show a 50% reduction in muscle soreness when using PR lotion. And you can benefit too with 25% off your next purchase using the code GTCC25. That's the letters GTCC and the number 25. Just visit amphuman.com forward slash GTCC and start training with your PR lotion today. So, Tom, today's guest, I think we've absolutely nailed it. I think, to be fair, I'm a bit nervous. I think this is the best guest we've had in our whole series. I think the word legend as well gets sort of thrown around a bit willy-nilly these days, but I think we've got a genuine legend on the show. He's won Paris-Roubaix a joint record four times, tour Flanders three times, which also is a record. I've got these off Wikipedia, so please correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, He's a, he's a big guy. He's six foot three in English money and almost 13 stone, which is roughly 82 kilos, I think. A bit more now. A little bit more now. <laughs> yeah. uh, recently retired. Welcome to the show, Tom Boonham. Thanks. Thanks for coming, mate. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure, man. So, first question, Tom. You've won Paris-Roubaix, as I said, four times, Tour Flanders three times. You also did them both in the same year, as well as the World Championships back in 2005. Out of the three... Which is the best? If you could only win one of them. Oh, if I could only win one of them, that would be my last one. But uh, the one that lasted, the impression lasted longest was the first one. But uh, the last one was in 2012 with a big solo. And uh, that was the one that gave me, was probably my biggest achievement on a bike. I remember that. How? What was it like? It was over 50k, no? Yeah, more like 60. Yeah. <laughs> wow, which is mad, got, really, isn't it? We got away with uh, four. Like I think it was Balan and Pozzato and me and Nikki uh, at 70 to go. And then it, it kind of just, we started riding a little bit, but it didn't really work. And then Balan and Pozzato, they got into a fight. And I looked back and I saw there was a gap of five meters. So I, I pushed hard. And then, then Nikki stayed with me for another 5Ks. And then he dropped out of my wheel so I was alone for like uh, 60Ks but uh, the effort started already a lot earlier like you know Rubez a, a race of just continuing efforts 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 and then in the end you end up with a lot of strong guys in front and was a was a big big race 
Yeah. Like, I, I don't want to be insulting now, but you weren't known for, like, your time trialing. It just goes to show <laughs> Roubaix is just unbelievable race, really, and it? it's just it's one of a kind. Yeah, my problem in time trialing is I'm, I find it hard to race against myself. That's my only problem. I did mm. some good efforts and some good results in time trials, but I really needed to find that focus and prepare for it for a few weeks or maybe a few months to get into the right focus. And then I did I won a few time trials and I got a few nice results. But overall, I didn't like it. I just I need somebody to race against. I need somebody chasing me. I don't like to be on my own and just think I need to go as fast as possible. But yeah, yeah it doesn't work in my my mental state of mind. <laughs> to be fair. I'd take Roubaix over any time trial anyway, so I'm with you there, mate. <laughs> Talking about long attacks, do you remember when me and you were actually in a break in Roubaix? Yeah, yeah um, I remember very well. I can't remember what year it was. and I can't remember. I, was... I think I, I thought about it today because, of course, we were here now. Uh, I think it was 2014. Yeah, and you guys, And you guys were in a breakaway with um, like eight or nine. I can't remember the exact number. And I was coming back from a flat and I came back with a chasing group of you guys. And Stan van den Berg, he was pulling for us already just to keep the gap as close as possible. And I was so full of adrenaline because I had to chase back uh, past two groups to get back to you guys. And I attacked straight away on the first cobblestone section and I bridged the cross. And then I came in front, still full of adrenaline, <laughs> trying to get to the finish line. And nobody wanted to pull anymore. And I was just pissed off all the time. But I was going to say, yeah, like... <laughs> I did pull a bit. Yeah, you, but, you uh, did. You, you and me, we wanted, we wanted to go. But I also remembered that the wind wasn't really... The wind was always like from from the front on the cobblestones and then from the side on, on the asphalt. So on the cobblestones, you couldn't really drop anyone. And it yeah. was, a, was a little bit a strange, strange race. And then everybody came back and I think we finished after Nikki. Nikki won the race and uh, we were there with a group of eight or nine behind him. Yeah, that's right, because Brad was there as well. That was his last race, I think. he was. That was my best result, actually, in Roubaix. I was seventh, but yeah, yeah, nothing like four wins. But I remember <laughs> just being, I don't want to sound like a fanboy now, but with 50-odd K to go, like you say, me, you, maybe a couple of others in the break, I was like, holy shit, I'm like, I'm pulling turns with Tom Boonen here in Paris-Roubaix. I was like, this is insane. Yeah, I still believe to, to this day that we could have made it if there was... One or two guys there who were believing maybe that they could win the race. But yeah, that's racing, you know. But that's Roubaix yeah. is such a specific race. You can do stuff that's not possible in other races. You can go from 60K of the finish line by yourself. It's it's hard to chase somebody in Paris-Roubaix. I remember when... I, I, were you there in 2012? No, I missed that year. Olympic year. When, when I got in front alone, then Sky was chasing me with four or five guys. But you just know, like, they're starting pulling with one or two guys really hard on the asphalt, and they hit the cobblestones, and they lose these guys for a, for a 5Ks. Then they come back, and so the tempo in front is pretty static, but in the back, it's always like this. And in the other race, you hit a climb, the front guy gets back, he loses 30 seconds on each climb, 40 seconds on each climb, but in Peru Bay, it's a different different race. You can really play with this. You know they're not going to keep accelerating you know they're gonna drop back for a while because then the leaders have to come and they're all looking at each other and it's a completely different race than the other classics with those long breakaways did you go into the race thinking right i'm gonna i'm gonna go long today or was it just purely you're racing and then it's just instinct and no i never thought about um i had a plan like you most of the time in, in roubaix the, the most important factor is the wind and the weather so you start with a plan like okay this this section or that section there's gonna be a lot of tailwind or side wind from the tail 
and then that's where you make up your plan and you try to get, make a hard race to that section and then try to make a difference there or drop some guys there. But the final is always different. You never know who's going to be there, how many teammates are going to be there or how many teammates of your opponent is going to be there. So, yeah, you can't make up a plan for a final of a classic. Yeah, and just for those listening that might not know, when Tom talks about tailwinds and sidewinds, basically it's easier to drop people on the cobbles when, if you've got a headwind, obviously you ride slower on the cobbles so people have a chance to stay in your wheel. Whereas if it's a tailwind, you can really go and they've basically got to put out similar power, okay, a little less if they're sat on you, but they got to work a lot harder, so it's really easier to attack on the cobbles then. Here's something that I'd like to know, Tom. As an amateur who's never, ever going to ride Paris-Roubaix like you and G have, it always seems from the outside that with cobbles, you just have to relish them. You've got to see them as fun. And if you're a sort of rider who fears them, then you're never going to win on them. Yeah, they, they often ask me like this, the secret of riding on cobblestones, but... Um... The secret of riding on cobblestones in a race like Paris-Roubaix is just try to avoid them as much as possible. <laughs> Stay in the side, save energy. And I think if you really look at um, the kilometers you do on the cobblestones, like 52 to 55 kilometers of cobblestones, I think if you look at it in real life, in the race, the top riders, they only probably will do 20 to 25 on the cobblestones. And all the rest, especially in April when the weather is fine, you will try to go to the sides as much as possible and just save energy. But you have to save this energy because on the moment that you have to go on the cobblestones and somebody opens the gas or you want to go full speed, yeah, you have to conserve that energy into those five to ten minutes where you really need them. And um, then you can go really fast. But you also have to have a love of it. And um, I always had uh, a lot of, not nerves, but like healthy nerves for Paris-Roubaix just because I love it so much. Yeah, I think from my point of view with Roubaix, the main thing is having big power for three, four, five minutes and then being able to recover and go again. I think, you know, the longest sectors, well, Tom will know more than me, but, you know, I don't think it's much more than five minutes. And yeah, with Roubaix, a lot of the time is is a big sprint into the sections, like crucial sections for position, because you want to be in far in front as possible because less mishaps, which I know all about them in most races. And yeah, I think it's just having good high-end power, being a big explosive rider and being able to recover from that really and go again. And yeah, that's what Tom and you know Fabian Cancellara, those type of guys, which were the best at it, that's what they were great at. Yeah, it's a fact. I mean, you have the cobblestone section, which is important, but um, a lot of times you have uh, 10 to 15 minutes preparation of this cobblestone section already. And that's like being prepared for a sprint. But for the most important sectors, you have a true sprint, like for uh, the forest of Arenberg. That's like a full-on sprint, 65k an hour sprint going into those cobblestone section. And a lot of times the difference is being made after the cobblestone. So it's a it's a big effort, the, the, the sprinting part, then the cobblestone section, and then probably most of the time when you turn left or right after the cobblestone section, and there's a good bit of wind, that's where you try to make the difference. So yeah, being, being strong, uh, explosive, um, being able to be in a good position 95% of the time to 100% of the time that makes a difference between a good cobblestone rider I think and somebody um, who's not so good in these kind of races and that's not only for Roubaix it's also for Flanders positioning is everything the entire day around yeah I think as you say Arenberg Forest of Arenberg that is absolutely mental like you go yeah, off a nice nice smooth tarmac onto 
my probably the most crazy section really slightly downhill into it like like tom says 65k an hour it's a full-on bunch sprint into there because you want a good position and it's just you hit it at this speed and it's just for you just let the bike go sometimes there's no point in fighting it you just need to yeah that it's unbelievable that sector i think it's crazy what we do really i think for anybody like normal people if you went and looked at that road you'd be like why the hell would you ride do a bike race over that you know it's just uh, but that's what just makes it so special it's unique it's the only thing in the world yeah when you enter the forest it's like a bomb explosion (laughs) your bike starts clattering you you hear rims break and tires explode behind you and you you can't look back you just have to try to stay in position and hopefully you're in the first five to ten but behind you, it's sometimes just mayhem. It's like if somebody crashes in the first 25 riders, then there's 55 guys in, on the ground be, behind him because the road is coming from a two-lane road in the end to a three-meter wide section where you can only ride in the middle section from the beginning. And then it opens up a little bit and you can, you can use a little bit more of it. But um, it's, a, it's a pretty pretty special feeling going into that sector. Tell us what else you can you can feel and what you can hear, Tom on those sectors we've seen the shots on tv where they're lined with spectators can you hear any shouts is it all just squealing of brakes and i guess there's things you can't do can you shout at other riders can you communicate in the sectors no when there's really uh, a lot of people there then it's uh, the people that really take away all the ability to to speak or, or shout or just try to stay focused on your bicycle and you're in this wall of sound around you but it was more like that the first few years when I when I did Paris Roubaix, they were still they were still able to drink, and there were a lot of bars next to the road, and everybody was <laughs> drunk. But then I think they they forbid it in 2010 or 11. I can't remember when. So um, there were a lot of buses, really special buses from Belgium, which had built-in uh, taps. So they would just drive there, and there would be 500 <laughs> people around them with music all day long and having having uh, 50 beers a day and then the race passes by and then at night they didn't know who won the race of course but that was that was probably that was like a big festival uh beer drinking festival with bikes included um now there's a lot more i think yeah normal cycling fans they don't drink that much anymore it's not allowed anymore so there's also less noise and less crazy stuff i, re- I remember a few times when you were entered the last three four sectors there was some places there where always the same crowd gathered and they were just there to have fun, which is something I really admire there. But um, sometimes they were so drunk that they would just crash into the road in front of you or f- cross over just in between two guys that were chasing each other for the win in Paris-Roubaix with five seconds of difference. So there were some crazy, some crazy uh, scenes there. From a fan perspective, I think I've always preferred Flanders. Even I just prefer that as a race, really. It's a bit controversial. I think most people would say Roubaix but for me Flanders is the one that really sort of excites me and that I just can't imagine what it's like being like the hero like Tom is like the legend you know the one that everybody wants to win and I was just a nobody in the race but I used to buzz off that atmosphere anyway so that must have been phenomenal for you yeah I love Tour of Flanders as well but the thing is with um, growing up here and doing all the the races in Belgium as a a junior or an amateur uh, a lot of these races are almost the same like you know Harlebeke I I prefer Harlebeke before Tour of Flanders Tour of Flanders has the history and it's big but the the racing from Harlebeke the way you race that race I love it more than I have to race Tour of Flanders because Tour of Flanders you have to wait more it's it's more 
tactical because the final, especially the old final, was uh, with the mood of Geras bearing everything. Yeah, we had a few times where we almost finished. There was 50 guys in front. Cipollini almost won Tour of Flanders one year. Eh? So in Adelbeke, for example, that's not possible. Adelbeke has that final. It's all the last 50 Ks, last 60, 70 Ks. You got one hill, one hill, one hill. All the hills are there. And then you have a 20K flat finish. And that makes it always exciting. And I love racing like that. It's shorter. It's more intense. There's there's less room for mistakes. Where in the old Flanders, yeah, you could with with a with a decent day and 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 the right wind, that could be a bunch print. The new parkours of Flanders now, it's it's more more or like the same as uh, as Harlebeke. There's more more races like it. You know, it's, they they all ride on the same hills. Where Paris Roubaix is a race that stands alone. There's nothing like it. It's the only race in existence that has a a parkour like that. That doesn't mean I didn't I don't love Tour of Flanders as well, but uh, Roubaix for me is a little bit more special than Tour of Flanders. Yeah, and I agree with you when you say you got better riders when E3 than Flanders. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. waiting for that, G. I was waiting I was for there. That. I was there. Yeah, I was there when you won. Really? Yeah. Oh, I beat you. No, I didn't race, I think. Oh. What year was it? <laughs> 2015, uh, was, was it? Yeah, 15. 15? Yeah, I crashed out in, uh, in Paris-Nice and I broke my shoulder. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. I appreciate so you, you not were being there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a big effort, man, you did there. Yeah, and talking about these build-up races, one race which I don't think you ever won, was it, was Hat Newsblad opening weekend. No, I never did. I never did. Because uh, I spoke to Stannard two days ago, actually, and he, <laughs> he told me, you've got to ask him about <laughs> Newsblad. <laughs> actually, uh, the year when Ian won, that was... The, the problem with me was always in uh, in Omlop, that was like the race you were trying to give away some presents. Like my, I, if you had a possibility for a teammate to win, you would try to make him win, so you had some good assistance for the rest of the classics. But I never won it. So at that point, we uh, we arrived in the final, and um, Nikki came to me. And he's like in in Dutch, hey, what are we doing? What are we What are we doing? What are we doing? And we were pulling already for 50Ks with Ian in the wheel. Uh, for, no, 45Ks, so we, we were entering the last 5Ks. He said, I said, if you want to win, if you want to have the team win, I stay in the wheel and we ride for the sprint. And he's like, yeah, yeah, but I also want to win and Stan also wants to win. I said, okay, we can try to do an attack, uh, but you're never sure. Okay, uh, let, let's start attacking. So what I did, I, I attacked first, <laughs> trying to get away from them. And then Ian just came back on us. Uh, he sat on our wheel for one hour. And um, the soon as I attacked, I felt like, ooh, my legs aren't there anymore like I thought they would be. He came back and then he started attacking us. And uh, Stan and, and uh, Nikki had the same problem. We were just killed. It was, I think, five degrees. And we were racing in the cold for 200Ks and pulling our, our, our hearts out for one hour. And um, yeah, I just messed it up big time. But it was nice. It was a nice race. I was super pissed when I crossed the finish line because also I was coming back actually to uh, to Nikki and Ian in the last kilometer. And Nikki was pulling with Ian in his wheel. Yeah. And then he stopped and then Ian took the lead and uh, it was a big mess up. It was something that... Um, but it's nice to still talk about it. If I would have won that race, we would have never talked about it this way. And it makes it makes cycling so nice to uh, to look at. It's never sure. And yeah, well, for Ian, it was a, a big win. And uh, for us, it was a, a nice lesson. Yeah, a bit of background there. Basically, Ian Stannard came into the final, as Tom says, with Tom and two of his teammates. So it was three three against one. And uh, yeah, 
bit of mis- miscommunication and Stanard took advantage. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he should have pulled. That was that was his problem. <laughs> <laughs> he should have done his work. I remember the first time I watched Tom. It was in the rain, actually. I'm pretty sure it was in the rain. That was it was a wet Roubaix, right? In 2002. It was. It was. Yeah. It, it started raining in the start. Uh, like I think after 10 minutes it started raining and there was a big wind all day long, very big wind. And I got in the breakaway after 20 k's. Uh, we got away with the echelon, 25 riders or something or maybe more. I can't remember. And then um, yeah, we we went to the first cobblestone section with like three minutes of the advantage. And it was only one team chasing us. That was he was postal for Hinkepi. I was the only guy in front, and um, <laughs> I made it to the final. Uh, but it was it was a pretty ruddy Ruben the wet is it was the last time it rained in Paris Roubaix. It was in uh, two thousand and two. So can you imagine it's like nineteen years ago this year? And before that I think it rained almost every year. Like all the editions I watched when I was a kid, it was always wet. And then it's just stopped raining in April, I guess. But it's pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty hard. Riding in uh, Ruben the wet is, is even is probably one and a half times more harder than uh, riding it in the dry. The speed is much lower. You have to accelerate more, more often. The technique is much more important. Um, not everybody is able to ride on cobbles, wet cobblestones with a lot of mud on it. Uh, there's more crashes, so there's a lot more stress going in. And being in front that year probably made me get into the final because I had all the time in the world on the cobblestones, just got in second, third position and just weaved back, finished cobblestone 15th position and guys were getting dropped. And I did this time over time until the big guns came with us and I still had the legs to ride the last 50k so I was good I guess it's hard you can't avoid the cobbles either then like you said earlier you know you, you can't ride in all the mud so no when it's wet it's a, it's a completely different race it eats you then it eats you alive <laughs> <laughs> that race though that's when I fell in love with the cobbles like watching that I must have been 2002 I must have been like 16 15 Oh, watching that on TV, it was just incredible. And uh, from that day on, I was like, because when I was a junior, we went to Belgium quite a lot racing. And that's always been my first love in cycling, really, those cobbled races. And seeing, like, like I remember your face just like a proper face mask, basically. You want to, I bet you had great skin after that. There's a picture of me when I, I just pick up my glasses. No, I have my glasses on. You can just see my eyes and all the rest is just black. Yeah, <laughs> and then I take my helmet off, and it was just one line. That was pretty muddy, deck. But uh, I did it. It rained one more time, um, but only in the beginning of the race. So the first cobblestone sections were wet that year. I can't remember which year it was. I think two thousand eight or nine. But then we had like the last fifty, no, seventy-five k's were completely dry. The thing is also when it doesn't rain, rain twelve hours, the the stones they dry up in in fifty minutes. Eh? The wind's there. It's always a lot of wind in Paris-Roubaix. So if there's only a little bit of water in, in, in 30 to 40 minutes, it's dry again, the cobblestone. So that's um, for a real red Paris-Roubaix, you have to have rain on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, in 2018, it rained before the race. And I remember we did a recon and we all crashed on the mud. Like it was unbelievable the amount of mud. Luckily for the race, it was dry and it all cleaned up. But I remember going into that thinking, do I really need to be here? Like I've, I'm targeting the tour for, yeah. And well, that was insane, that race. I actually crashed one of the first sectors, got taken out on the mud and that was it. Race over, but yeah. But I hope it, I hope it rains again one year. <laughs> Did, didn't uh, it rain last year? So when the race was cancelled? 
it was yeah. raining that day yeah it was raining big time it's a shame <laughs> <laughs> so a proper yeah a proper parry bay it needs to rain yeah no it doesn't need to rain but it's yeah every every five to ten years you should have a, a big wet edition so Tom, we're used to the pictures at the end of Paris Roubaix, and like cycling's a tough sport, and riders can look broken after most races. But there's something about Paris Roubaix in particular where the riders just look desolate. It's the dust, it's the dirt, it's the hollow eyes. When you're riding those cobbles, what hurts first? And the stuff hurt on cobbles that just doesn't hurt on other stuff. <laughs> I was really, I don't know why, but I never had any. Big problems after uh, after Paris-Roubaix. I had one year when I really had to, like, uh, sorry, I had to say, piss razor blades for three days. <laughs> um, that was that was the only year I had it. So I think I had a, a bad uh, bad pants on or something. <laughs> I don't know. But most of the time I was fine. I never had any blisters or anything. So just sore legs and sore arms from the cobblestones and from the racing. But no big issues. Only one year. Yeah, I think that shows. Tom was made for it. There's been guys on teams I've been on during recons. They've stopped and got in the car because they're like got in blisters or they're sore <laughs> or just soft guys that are made for it. And when you're riding those cobbles, gee, I remember once you gave me this analogy. You said you have to look ahead and you almost have to plot your way through these cobbles a little bit like a snooker player might plot a break. And in the way that a really good snooker player knows maybe three or four reds ahead of where they are now where they're going to be that you guys when you're riding on the cobbles you're looking that far ahead whereas someone like me rides i pretty much look down over my front wheel but you guys are you know you might be sort of 20 30 meters up the road with your with where your eyes are, are going yeah as, as, as far away as possible if you're riding in a bunch or you're in a, in the line you're trying to look if you're fifth position you're trying to look to the in front of the, the first guy the, the further you can look the easier it gets it's like you're making a how do you say this? Um, everything gets flatter. Like if you look farther away and you're riding on the cobblestones, you flatten out the surface. It doesn't really flatten out, but sensitively lies, it, it gets flatter. I don't know why, but it just works like that. And also, yeah, trying to find the right line on the cobblestones is something you uh, also need some experience for. If you ride it for the first time or you ride it for the 15th time, of course, you know where it's really bad and where it's going to be better. But especially, yeah, having a clear vision and looking uh, a, a lot of uh, as much as possible in front of you. I think that's key as well. It's um, people that have ridden it a lot, like Tom, the specialists. They know certain sectors. There's certain places you need to be. I remember Heyman always used to tell us, like going into Carrefour de Lab and other ones like that. There's certain places. It's like, well, you always start on this side, and then you would go over here, and there's always a, a better line. But speaking, actually, that reminds me of of Heyman, this might be a touchy subject for you, Tom, but if you had won the the race that Heyman won, I don't know when it was, was that 2018, 17? 16. 16, blimey. But if you had won that, obviously you came second in the sprint to Heyman and you would have been five-time winner, all-time king of Roubaix. Yeah, the thing was, it was for me, I crashed in um, Abu Dhabi in 2015, in October, and I broke my skull. I got ah. into the hospital. Uh, I, I lost the hearing on my left side. Uh, a lot of shit. And the doctor told me, uh, "Yeah, okay, you, it's, you're going to be fine after a few days in intensive care. You don't have to worry about anything. Everything is going to be 100% normal, and you can start riding your bike again in six months." So I was like, "What? Six months?" So I took my phone. I watched. It was six months to Paris on that day. 
So I kind of panicked a little bit and um, I was super tired for one or two months or even longer. I can't remember. Like everything I did, I just got tired and tired. So when um, I got out of intensive care and the doctors told me uh, I need to stay off my bike for another six months, uh, yeah, I was pretty... um, pretty off charge because it's also I was 35 years old already uh, you know you're not gonna have that many chances and um, I was just I finished a, a super good end of the season I was super shape I won uh, probably the last three four races I competed in except the world championship in uh, Richmond where I was also really good and then I crashed break my skull boom everything gone uh, I started training again after one or two hours I needed to st- stay in bed all afternoon because yeah it's it's your brains eh? your brain had had a big impact and i had a little bit of bleeding in my brains as well so you feel fine but you really have to listen to your body and it's more like just having pain in your legs so it took me a lot a long time to get um to get back on the right track training wise and then the season started and every race i did was just i knew i was i wasn't going to be ready in Harlebeek. i knew i wasn't going to be ready in, in flanders but every day i was getting better and better and after flanders i said yeah i'm gonna be i'm gonna be not 100 fit but i think i will be able to win the race i felt like okay i'm going to be there i have to think use everything i know but i'm going to be there and we make a big plan the wind was right everything was right it was nice weather no 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 big dangers and um, uh, we started uh, already before the Forest of Valers. Uh, we crossed to the first group, arrived there. Yeah, Matthew Heyman, he wasn't, he was in front, but he stopped pulling, of course, while we were coming back. And then we had the best final I ever did in Paris-Roubaix. It was super good. We were there with four or five guys. And I think most of them were at the same strength level. Not None of them was really better than the other. So attacks all over the place. Uh, I had sacked in the, the last two Ks, I think. Matthew came across, he passes me, I had to chase him back, so it was really nice. We came into the velodrome, and at the moment I said, okay, this is going to be my race today, I only focused at Matthew Heyman in front of me, and then the moment he accelerates, it was way too early, but he just accelerated, because I think he said, okay, I'm going to be second. I stayed in his wheel, and just before we entered the corner, Sepp van Marke came next to me, but he was coming back, so he had his speed. He came next to me, and he closes the door all right around the corner. We we're exiting the corner, and then I didn't have the slingshot, so I came, but it's only 40 meters from there, so I didn't make it, and Matthew won the race. But in the end, um, I have to say, I wasn't disappointed for a second after that race. It was so much fun to do it. I would have, of course, loved to win it, and uh, it was my objective to win it. But uh, when a rider like Matthew wins, and especially after a final like that, you can only be happy as a as a cycling lover. Did you race track actually at all in your youth? Yeah, a little bit, but you know how it is here in Belgium. It's I had to go to Ghent. We had we don't have a big track history here in Belgium, and for a for a kid that's fifteen, sixteen years old, you have to ask your parents to drive to Ghent one hour and a half to two hours single way, and then coming back for one hour racing, uh, one hour training on the track. So I did it a, a, a few times, but not much. But I had a few records when uh, when I was a junior here on outside tracks, like a standing kilometer and stuff like that. But I never really got into it. We played with the idea in 2008 to um, take a few months off road racing and had like Sebastien Rosselet, Steegmans, me, and then the fourth guy, I, really, I don't remember, doing the team pursuit. I remember that. Yeah, we were playing with that idea some 
four big horsepower guys and Sebastiano's uh, Stegmans and Rosalie, they had really track experience, real track experience from the from some Olympiads uh, with the youth or something. But I would love I would love to do that. But yeah, the team didn't really wanted it. Yeah, thanks for not doing that as well because I wouldn't have won Olympic gold either. <laughs> <laughs> was it two, was it 2008 you won the gold the first one yeah then we 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 won in london as well yeah yeah nicely done g the first one yeah the first one was 2008 <laughs> damn i've got one more question for you tom before we go so you know garrett started out in the classics and he had a good spell of chasing the classics and has obviously transformed himself into a gc rider into someone who targets the the main prize at the grand tours do you think before G calls it a day, not that we're suggesting that you're at the end of your career, G, but do you think, Tom, before G <laughs> bows out, he should just push the GC stuff to one side and have a couple of seasons? Like, put a bit of timber on and have a couple of final seasons chasing the big classics again. Yeah, of course he has to do it. I never understood all that GC stuff, eh? anyway. <laughs> <laughs> A, a rider like him, man, he can he can win twenty five classics if he tries, and he's going to Tour de France in July in the heat, sweating his ass off for a month, <laughs> being, being skinny, starving myself, yeah, starving yourself for uh, for six months or maybe twelve months a year. No, I had I had the same discussion on a different level with a, a few of my my teammates in the past, the guys who were able to do a top ten in the Tour de France, but also with the history of being Flemish and being really good in the classics. And you always have to ask yourself uh, the effort you have to do for a classic race. I mean, the, the the hardcore effort is probably the same, but a rider like like for myself or like if you have to go uphill for three hours a day uh, on 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 the limit. It takes a it takes a lot more of your body and your your mental state as well. And I just love preparing for a one day race, and I could do all the efforts all the GC guys do preparing for a one day race. But I love the idea you have a start and a finish line in the same day, and everybody goes all in from the start to the finish line. On a big stage race, um, for me, the the highest achievable goal was winning the green jersey, and I I I love it. I I did I, for me it was one of the big goals of my my career. But it wasn't the same like trying to win the classics year after year. I, I won it once for myself. I proved I could do it, and that was fine for me. And um, yeah, I just love more the idea of having everybody at the start of a of a of a classic probably thinking 100 guys of out of 180 that maybe there's a way to win in the Tour de France. You have an, you have five guys thinking this, and uh, it's a big difference. But uh, I respect the effort. I know how hard it is, but I just, I just love more one-day races. So uh, after you're fi- after you're finished with your chasing the second tour, you should do another <laughs> few years doing the classics. Give me a call. I'll take my bike and I'll show you how it's done. <laughs> yeah, sweet. Let's do it. Let's go for E3 number two. Then. I'll show you. I'll show you all the tricks. Which we, which you don't know already. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me where to ride most of the time and all this. Yeah, you can win Peru Bear, man. You can easily win Peru Bear. Oh, for sure, it's still that burning desire to give that one more good go as well. Yeah, you should, man. You 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 regret it if you don't. Hopefully next year. I think with one day racing as well, it's like you say, it's A to B. It's over in one day, and it's just spontaneous as well. I think with tra- with stage racing, especially Grand Tours now, it's a lot of sort of calculated holding back do this do that whereas one day racing is go empty the tank but anyway tom 
I want to say huge thanks for joining us. Appreciate the effort. And uh, yeah, I'll call you next year then. We'll go do some recons and stuff. Yeah, do that. Let me know whenever I can be of assistance. <laughs> Special price, eh? <laughs> no, no, man. I don't charge you anything. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. All right, thanks. guys. Fantastic. Cheers, Tom. Oh, man, that was a belter, eh, Tom? I was. Uh, I had so many more questions, though. Like, I think we might have to try and... Um, set up a Tom B 2.0 maybe for the next series because you know the battles between him and Cancellara and maybe we can get Cancellara on as well actually I'm setting out quite a big challenge for myself here but oh I just feel like there was so much more we could have got out of him there definitely you get us Fabian that's a great shout week 12 on Swift Tom surely you've won a race by now you'd think so wouldn't you You'd think so, but unfortunately the answer is no, I haven't. <laughs> Partly because I have my fingers burning the other race and it's just taken me a little bit of time to get my courage back, I think. You know, I had a, I had a week when I was doing one of the training plans and you know the old ERG mode you get on Zwift, which basically adjusts the resistance on the pedals for you, right? I'd inadvertently switched it off. So when I was meant to be doing these really hard intervals, they were actually really quite easy so like proper <laughs> hardcore cyclist would have rectified this by putting the ERG mode back on but I, <laughs> I basically gave myself a much more pleasant hour by pretending that I couldn't actually match those speeds so listen I've got to hold my hand up I haven't done another race but um, I'll take that as a rocket uh, towards the chairperson and I will pledge to do another race very very soon if you fancy giving Zwift a go we've not done it before just go to Zwift.com to start your free trial also, don't forget, you can join our club ride every Wednesday at 6pm. Everyone's welcome. Right, G, so it's the section where we try and give our fellow GTCC club members some tips around this week's topic. And there are cobbles in the UK, aren't there? Like, where I am in the northwest, there's two or three different sections everyone knows. There's Swiss Hill in Audley Edge which people know. And then there's, I think it's Bradford Lane, which is a bit further south, but the same neck of the woods. There's definitely some good ones in West Yorkshire, around Todmerton, around there. So like, you don't actually have to go to northern France, the forest of Arenberg or to, to Belgium to get stuck in, do you? No, you don't. And I think, um, you know, those cobbled climbs, like Swiss Hill especially, when, we're, when I used to live up there on the under 23 Academy, we used to go up there, battering up there, thinking we were Tom Boonen actually and, and other guys like that. So um, yeah, you can still get a good taste for them, but um, I'd highly recommend if you could get out to watch one of those races, like, especially because they do loops. So you can see the riders a few times and you can ride the course, you know, the day before and stuff. There's, there's no better feeling, but you can definitely get a good feel for it in the UK though, for sure. Okay. And then how can our fellow members prepare for cobbles? Is there stuff they can do to their bikes is there stuff they can practice with their bike handling yeah so i think if you're going to go and give roubaix a go you know us pros we're lucky enough that we have purpose-built frames so we have frames which are longer sort of wheelbase so they're a bit softer almost you have a bit more give in them also pinarello made bikes with built-in suspension which turns on when you're on the cobbles turns off when you're on the, the tarmac which is handy and then that means you're you can have your tire pressures higher so then on the tarmac road, you've got less resistance because your tyres are harder. Um, but then the suspension means it softens it, obviously. Whereas everybody else that doesn't have suspension, they run lower tyre pressure because on the cobbles, you need 
you need that basically so if that makes sense but um for someone joe blogs in the street i think you know double bar tape is a common thing that people do or put gel underneath the bar tape i think when you're on them the main thing is just relaxing not really gripping hold of the bars and and just relax your upper body um which is a common theme really i guess isn't it like same with time trialing and stuff you, you don't want to be super tense and that just relax your upper body let the bike sort of move a bit underneath you and as tom well tom b as we'll call him as tom b said you know look ahead plan your route where you're going don't be sort of looking right in front of you. as if you're mountain biking as well really look long look long yeah uh certainly change your width of tires as well you don't want to be riding roubaix on 21 23 millimeter tires you need fatter ones i'd say they're the main things that, that jump straight to mind really or just buy a k10 pinarello but i think that's quite expensive for, <laughs> for one-off ride <laughs> yeah for just for knocking out the uh the roubaix sportive once in your life what <laughs> about there was something that that tom b uh, a phrase that he used um, involving razor blades, which um, made me think that the, should we call it the undercarriage? Some people might call it the bass. The the um, the area that has most contact with a bike as a cyclist. Like, do you need a different pad? Would you ever stick on like double bib shorts or anything like that? Or, and maybe gee, you've just got a very leathery undercarriage and you can absorb whatever's thrown at you. <laughs> Yeah, I got a granite gooch, as I've said in the past. <laughs> um, no, I think you you definitely don't want to double up the shorts, really. Nah, just stick with your normal shorts. Maybe have a bit of um, chamois cream. But I think, yeah, it is just going to be different and like nothing else before. So you are going to be, it is going to take a pound in, let's be honest. And it could be a bit sore. But when you're on the cobbles as well, I think if you can pick the best line and you have a bit of speed, it is almost like you're, you're skimming them. You like as when you skim a stone on the river, on a on a lake or something. You do feel better the quicker you go. Almost that's obviously easier said than done, though, isn't it? But yeah, when it comes to your undercarriage, mate, I think it's just just grit your teeth and, and, and bear it. Really, sorry, I got no other. <laughs> Maybe you can get a cover for your saddle. I don't know, but yeah. Do you know what it sounds like to me? G, having listened to you and having listened to Tom B. It just sounds like the main thing with cobbles is to relish them. Like, don't fear them. Embrace the battered bars. You know, embrace the fact that your arms can be shaken. That is the beauty of cobbles. Like, you're doing it to feel different. You don't feel, you know, you're not doing it so you feel the same as you do when you're sitting at your desk working. Yeah, definitely. And I think before you do it, just watch on YouTube a couple of um, races and really get that feel for it. And if you if you are lucky enough to be able to go and watch one of them, yeah, go and do that and then ride it the next day and, it's just like it's like when you play snooker on a full size snooker table. Then you have a real appreciation for snooker players, then don't you? Like at first you're like, oh come on, can't be that hard, and then you can't <laughs> even pot a ball, you know. So yeah, I think just doing it yourself, there's no better. Yeah, there's no better way of experiencing it. And it, it, oh, I think with Roubaix as well, you know, you can almost once you finished the race or the sportive whatever, it's almost hard to straighten your hands again. You know, if you've been gripping the bars and they've just been it's just been like holding a what's it called a big jackhammer all day yeah you, you, your joints and everything can be achy and oh but the satisfaction of of doing it and that achievement it's like like we say about climbing you know that challenge of riding up Alpe d'Huez or Vontu or whatever I think riding not all of them because it's it's a hell of a long way but riding the a good few sectors of Paris-Roubaix is 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 some achievement really 
Tom, let's finish with any other business then. So what appointments you got for us this week? Right. First up, G, I want to suggest Ross Taylor for the position of head mechanic. So Ross has said in his application, I've been a pro mechanic since about 1998 and have run my mobile mechanic business since 2007. We drive out and about all over Bristol in our mobile workshop van servicing bikes. Now, this this feels like something we need because the the old mobile van has massively come into its its own during lockdown for a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. And a mechanic is very useful, isn't it? Because, well, even myself, to be honest, like I really remember to take a pump with me. So, um, if he could be on call whenever I'm in South Wales, it'd be handy. You know, I'll pay his bridge. Actually, no, the bridge is free now, isn't it? Bonus. Bridge is free. Even easier for us to get across. Yeah, so he's in. Just one thing, though, pro mechanic, what does that mean? He's just a professional mechanic. It's not like he's been part of the pro peloton. He's just... (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, Ross, you can clarify this one. I'm taking it, G, that he doesn't do his mechanic duties for free. He expects uh, a small payment for his duties. I'm not knocking it, though, yeah. Fair play. He's in. He's in. (laughs) Okay, our second appointment today is Alex Labby, who wants to be... The GTCC Honorary Exercise Scientist. Now, this is a little bit outside the scope of my experience. Gee, what is an exercise scientist? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Have they done physiology, maybe? Or they just, they're a scientist that keeps fit? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I'm stumped, actually. Well, we have episodes planned with nutritionists and coaches. I hadn't really factored in an exercise scientist. So, Alex, I'll tell you what, could you get back in touch with us and just really sell your role? Basically, tell us what you do and why we need you. Um, that would definitely <laughs> help us, I think. Why do we actually need you? <laughs> <laughs> uh. And finally, Stephen Brown has got in touch with a few ideas for future podcasts. So he wants to hear from some behind-the-scenes members at Ineos. So he's talking about mechanics, soigneur, support crew. It's quite a nice shout, isn't it? Yeah, because they definitely live live a, a, a hard, strange life, to be fair. Just waiting on us, basically. A lot of people in cycling have got into cycling through being a soigneur, haven't they? So, so Dave Brailsford started off as a swanee back in the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the big sort of rags-to-riches story, isn't it? Yeah. So, no, fair. he was... Because he... Obviously a cyclist. He went over to France, didn't quite make it. Ended up joining some team as a Swanee or something and then ended up part of the British cycling system and, yeah, the rest is history. So Nice. Well, we love hearing our members' ideas, don't we, G? We like it when we're on our GTCC weekly club rides and people start suggesting topics. So do keep them coming. And if you keep listening, I suppose we might even get a Series 2 out of all this. So, Tom, it's the final item of the podcast. Which podcast should I try out this week? Right, G, a little bit of personal bias in my selection this week because I am on this podcast. But more importantly, so is Joe Marler. Yeah, rugby player, plays for Harlequins in England. Very funny man. He's been finding out what people with non-sporting jobs do. So like Ned the Cheesemaker, BJ the Blind Man and a woman called Michelle who's witnessed over 300 executions. It's interesting, it's funny, it's guaranteed to make you laugh. Just search for the Joe Marler Show. We'll see you next time. See you later. Cheers. That was the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Thanks to our new head mechanic, Ross Taylor, to our head of social media, Fionn Clark, our head of music, Emma Hickman, our treasurer, Diane Barker, and our honorary president, Mike Carr. And of course, to you, 
our fellow GTCC club members for listening. We'll see you next time. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.